Dr. Melina. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. All right. So we've had a little interview already on Twitch. We talked about diatoms and I wanted to have you uh, as a guest on the podcast because I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about life as a scientist. So first of all, you are a doctor, which means you've completed your PhD and you are a paleolimnologist. Is that correct? That is correct. Now that's a mouthful for somebody who has no idea what paleolimnology is. So could you briefly tell me what does paleolimnology stand for? Yeah, so <laughs> it is definitely a big word and it's hard to roll off the tongue. But paleolimnology, it basically just means that I study past lakes. So paleo is past, limnology is the modern study of lakes. So we just kind of combine that and I want to look at the history of a lake and how there were environmental changes in that lake over time. Those environmental changes can be things like uh, changes in the lake level that I've seen or changes in the nutrient content of lakes. So basically we're just trying to reconstruct those changes so that we can have some sort of basis for comparison of modern lake um, characteristics. Okay, I think that makes a little bit more sense. Now, you did your PhD, you just finished your PhD this year, correct? Yes. <laughs> the best okay, well, first it. of all, yeah, well, first of all, congratulations. Thank uh, you. You have not only survived the plague, you've also survived your PhD. <laughs> yes, two very hard things. <laughs> exactly. So I am actually a university dropout. I've dropped out seven times. I've tried. It's not for me. <laughs> Uh, it's really not mm -hmm. for me. So you need a certain kind of mindset, not only to uh, finish university studies, to, but to also do graduate studies and then do a PhD. How did you know you wanted to do a PhD? Oh, um, well, so I have always, 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 even as a kid, um, throughout my entire life, just loved learning. I've had a passion for all things history, all things science. And I always, and, and this is not necessarily a, a requirement for going into higher education, but me as, as a person, I've just always excelled in school. So it was something that I was good at. Um, I knew I could succeed. And the more and further on that I got into school, the more I loved it. Um, not so much for all of the different subjects that I've studied, but more so for the fact that I get to continue learning and that I can kind of make a career out of that. I know that everybody continues learning every single day, but I get to take that learning and, and use it as a, as a career and try to spread that knowledge to other people. And um, honestly, I could have been happy in almost any any field that I was interested in as long as I was going into academia. And I didn't even really have a goal originally. I went in, I, I was in high school. I didn't have a major when I first went into undergraduate. I was undeclared. And uh, I decided after my first class on, I took a class on dinosaurs <laughs> my freshman year. And that dinosaurs class just kind of got me into geology right away. And then from there, I just kind of got sprung into the series of like opportunities that I took advantage of. And each opportunity led to another. And I just kept being happier and happier with those opportunities. And suddenly I ended up here. <laughs> Amazing. And, you know, you said everybody learns every day and all that stuff. But this is different kind of learning. This is really zeroing in on something that's very, very particular. Uh, so what was it about paleolimnology that really, I mean, yes, you went from dinosaurs to geology, but it's it's really in depth when you do your PhD. It's it's an, essentially it becomes an obsession, doesn't it? For a few oh, yeah. years, <laughs> yes, uh, a very heightened obsession. So paleolimnology really struck me. I, I mentioned that I was always into history and sciences as a kid. So those were my two subjects that I was very very involved in. So as a as a kid, my childhood fantasy was not paleontology like a lot of kids like dinosaurs, and then they go into that. But I was really interested in archaeology and studying past human civilizations. So after I ended up going to my undergrad and I decided to major in geology and go into this field where I'm studying the past and using rocks to study the past, I didn't really think that there was a way to merge those two fields together. 
like archaeology and uh, geology. Um, and I also really liked studying fossils. So I really, really love looking at past life. And I like looking at past life in order to kind of tell something about the environment around us, not necessarily so much to study the organism itself. Um, so when I found paleolimnology, I found it through diatoms. So if you want, I can just do a brief thing about diatoms just because I oh, brought we'll it talk up. about it. No, we'll, 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 we'll talk <laughs> okay. about that a little bit later. I want to concentrate on the whole, you know, you, you survived your PhD part because I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm still fascinated. For me, what I find most fascinating is that it's, it's, it's um, not the average person that can concentrate on something for that long and obsess with it and oh, deal yeah. with all sorts of struggles, not just um, academic struggles. Because it is difficult. It's a very challenging thing to uh, to take on, but it's also financially difficult. I know that uh, people yeah. who do PhDs and postdocs, did you do a postdoc as well? I have not done a postdoc yet. We can talk about my struggles post PhD. <laughs> well, let's I, let's actually let's let's tell me about during your PhD because I know a lot of PhD candidates who were, I mean, just overcome with anxiety. It is a very high pressure. I think the average person doesn't understand how much pressure is put on PhD candidates, PhD students. Tell me a little yeah. bit about that. Did you feel that pressure? Yeah, so that's a it's a tough question because right now, especially on Twitter, there's a lot of uh, incoming students right now that are having a lot of anxiety towards coming into a PhD program. And it's because a lot of the grad students that are in PhD programs and just master's programs in general kind of um, present this doom and gloom facade on, on Twitter. And I don't say it's a facade. There are definitely doom and gloom moments. And it's a very, very high stress atmosphere, just like you said. But just like in everything in life, the PhD really, it's just an up, down. It's a, it's a roller coaster ride. There's no other way to put it. There are days where you're extremely happy, extremely high related to your research. And it has, it's, it's like no feeling. It's almost like your baby because <laughs> you've been working yeah. on something um, for so long and so hard um, that those those moments where you do succeed or you have something to celebrate are really, really great. But what I think was the hardest thing for me through this is as a student and lots of PhD students come in as students that have excelled in the past. And they've been, you know, praised for that and they have all of these good grades and they receive feedback. As soon as you get into grad school, that feedback kind of goes away, that that praise goes away. You're in this field where suddenly everybody around you is somebody that succeed, succeeded in school. Suddenly everybody around you is a high achiever. So it's like what sets you apart? So I think where a lot of people tend to struggle and where that anxiety comes from is trying to fit in in that atmosphere and struggling to know if you do fit in in that atmosphere. And then there's a whole other side of it as well, where academia as a whole really glorifies this kind of, um, this kind of atmosphere where you work all the time. And just because you really love that subject, it should be your entire life. So they glorify working very long hours. Um, there's a lot of relationships between the advisor and the student that are sometimes very unhealthy. Um, that wasn't the case for me. I had a very good relationship with my advisor. And honestly, I attribute most of my success and the good experience I had to the fact that I found an advisor that was supportive, um, was compassionate, was just consistently there, and also treated me as an equal. She treated me like a scientist and not like somebody that she was trying to boss around or um, make work long hours. She had realistic expectations of me. And when you have that sort of relationship with your advisor, it really, really makes things so much easier. Um, and just to, uh, sorry to interrupt, but no, just ahead. to make things a little more clear for people who, again, aren't aware of how the PhD process works, but you have an advisor during, what is it, two, three years for a PhD? It really depends on the program. Um, mm -hmm. My, for geology programs, it's typically anywhere between three to six years. So it depends on the project. Three years is very, very fast. Um, four to five years is more in the range of what people typically do. I did it in oh, four. Wow. 
Oh, wow. Okay. So I really underestimated then how long it takes. <laughs> Other programs do, it's shorter, but for our, for our geology program, it's typically that. And do you have the same advisor throughout? Yes. Um, if it's working out. I mean, if your advisor is not working out, I do know of somebody that was getting her PhD. Um, she's a good friend. She was in Switzerland, I want to say. Um, but she did not have a good experience with one of her advisors. He was not very good to her, and she ended up switching advisors halfway through. So there are instances where you could switch your advisor, but usually you wouldn't really do that. Okay. And when you're doing a PhD, are you getting any funding at all? Yeah. So again, that kind of depends on the program. For uh, all of the geology programs that I looked into, they typically try to fund you if they're accepting you. So you can get funded through teaching assistantships where you would be teaching classes related to your subject, or you can get funded by your advisor through a research assistantship, would be, which would be funding through their grant. Um, so I was funded throughout my master's and my PhD by a mixture of the two of them, and that's typical. So sometimes your advisor will have grant money, sometimes they won't. So you can go in and out like one year you're a research assistant and the next year you're a teaching assistant because that money's kind of run out. Um, okay. But yeah, that's how that's how the funding would work. And then typically you also get, as you're accepted, you would get uh, the tuition paid for in my program. So every time the tuition was free, but we had to pay fees. So you still have to pay a pretty hefty sum of student fees. Okay, that that gives us a little bit more of an idea that people who are doing PhDs aren't uh, you know rolling in <laughs> rolling in the cash. Uh, so the other thing that I wanted to know was whether or not you have the ability to get published. Uh, do you have to wait until after you get your PhD to to get published, or are you able to contribute to uh, journal articles when you're doing your PhD? How does that work? Yeah, so you can you can technically publish at any time. Um, there are undergraduate students that have been published master's students that have been published. My first publication um, that I published was in my second or third year of my PhD here. And it was uh, one of the chapters that I had been working on and I had finished it early. So we decided to do it for publication. But there's no right or wrong way to do that. <laughs> Just to clarify, you don't have to publish. You can wait or you can publish. There's no real guidelines there. Isn't there a lot of pressure in academia though? Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's so much pressure to publish. That's just my that's my personal opinion on it. But the that's another anxiety thing with academia is the pressure to publish, because when you want to continue on into academia as a Ph.D. student, having those publications before you graduate is going to give you an edge in the job market. So like and if you if you would like a professor position, they'll look at that record. Right. And to explain to, again, to the, the average person who has no idea about academia, getting published is kind of like putting a trophy on your mantle, isn't it? Basically. <laughs> okay. It's like, like a um, participation sticker. Right. And, and when we say getting published, we're talking about journal articles, so scientific journals. We're not, we're not talking getting published in the New York Times. We're, we're literally talking about getting published in academic journals uh, contributing to research. Yes, exactly. So um, a popular journal that a lot of people really strive to get into or two popular journals would be science um, and then nature. Those are the, the high end ones that people are really striving to publish in. And then there's a bunch of other journals that are much more specialized that you can aim for. But you basically take your work you edit it into the format that that journal wants, and then you submit it, and you don't get any money for that. <laughs> you're not you're not paid, um, and oftentimes, because if they want color figures produced or color images in your work, you'll actually have to pay for that. Um, a lot of these journals are actually private journals, so they you have to pay a fee to make them publicly available as well. So that's kind of a hindrance on making science more accessible to the public. Um, but open access is kind of something that a lot of people are pushing for right now, especially in the current anti-science climate. <laughs> yeah. So this is something that I think I saw on Twitter about 
uh, journal articles and and that I learned I because I had no idea that you had to pay to play essentially for a lot of these journals. Uh, I don't under I, I still I don't think I still understand why you would have to pay to contribute to a journal to advance science. Like you would think this is all tax funded, or you think it should be tax funded. I don't. I don't understand. Do you? Do you have a little bit more insight to offer as to why it's like that? Honestly, I wish I did. Um, in my opinion, it's a completely antiquated system, and that is that is just solely my opinion. I have not been in the game long enough, I guess, to know all of the all of the stuff that goes into it. I know that the color figure thing has to do with print copies, but I'm never really sure why that would have to do with a digital copy because how many people are actually getting these journals in print copy is what I think now. Most people download it digitally. Um, the open access thing, I think, is just a way to keep the journal running, <laughs> just ways to get money. Um, but yeah, I, I, I honestly don't want to say too much about that just because I haven't really as I said, been around to understand those semantics so much. I think um, you know, you've know you been talking to Jeffrey Stone a lot yes. on Twitter, yes. and he's actually an editor um, for one of these journals, Diatom Research. So he would probably be a better person to ask about that stuff. Yeah, I'll definitely have to ask him about that. Uh, it, now, Especially now that I know about it, I, I'm just fascinated by how there are systems that we don't know about uh, as people who aren't part of that world, you know? Um, and so it explains why a lot of the information out there is not easily accessible. And, it'll, you know, I, I, think, I think open access has some merit. I think it definitely does. I didn't know that it was pay to play to get into the open access part of it. So that's another thing that I'm I don't know. I, I'm just surprised. That's all. <laughs> I'm very I, honestly, I, I was very surprised when I first came in, but it seemed like something that was normal, mostly because being at university, you get access to their libraries. So you kind of take that for ad advantage because you you don't have to pay to get access to those things because it's paid through your your university fees. But now that I'm finishing up here and I'm struggling to kind of get a job in the current COVID climate, um, I'm worried about losing my access to that. And I can't even imagine a world where I can't just like look up something and be like, oh, I get this for free. I would have to actually pay for access or pay to subscribe to that journal. And although that's great in the long run, a lot of people don't really want to do that. But I don't really have a solution, I guess, for still funding those journals and making these things open access. Right. I think that's the beautiful part, isn't it, of being a student. It's having access to all of this knowledge. Like you said, the university library is open to you. These journals are there. I, you've got to have that kind of feeling that, you know, this was awesome. But like you said, in this climate, now you're done. Now you're out of the university system. Do you yeah. feel like a, a little bit of mourning, I guess, after this? Yeah, it's kind of, this is the first um, time that I will not be going back to school in some form since I went to preschool. <laughs> so wow. this year has been a very bizarre year. Uh, I haven't, I, I'm very excited about it at the same time, but it's also just kind of like I should be getting ready to go back in and teach or I should be getting ready to go back in and like take a class or um, just have some sort of schedule that's related to a university. And it's just a, I don't want to say it's like a complete hole, but it's like a hole right now. Like, I just don't have that. <laughs> of course, it's almost like someone, you know, getting laid off after being on the same job for 25 years or something, you know? Yep. It's, it's there's a void. There's something that you, you're going to have to mourn, uh, you know, the, the former environment that you loved so much, you know? Yeah. So eh, I think uh, at the same time, though, it's there's got. Is there a part of you that's excited about future opportunities? Oh, I'm so excited about future opportunities. But uh, the problem is right now there's just so much, so many issues with COVID that it's also just such a struggle to know that there would be these opportunities if we weren't in the current situation. 
Like I've gotten um, job interviews that were pushed back to like 2021 because of funding issues. Um, I've struggled with just professor positions being like open and available and also with even desiring to want to do that right now because I've seen the stress of the teachers and professors that are around me with having to like prepare to teach remotely and in person. So I'm almost kind of grateful that I am in the position I'm in right now and I am struggling because I would also be struggling there. <laughs> if that right. makes any sense, it would just be a different totally. sort of stress and anxiety. Totally. What's your um what's your dream job? Oh, I want to have it all. <laughs> I've said this to somebody before. I love I simultaneously love research and teaching like exactly the same. I get such fulfillment from both of them. So really my dream job would be working at an academic institution as a professor, but also being able to continue doing research. So I guess there, so when you think of in universities, they're typically classified as R3 to R1, being they're more research oriented or they're not as research oriented, they're more teaching oriented. So when you're looking for jobs, you can search for an R3 institution if you'd like to be more teaching and teaching oriented. If you want to be more research oriented, you would go to an R1 institution and then an R2 would be somewhere in between. And I think I'd be happy at any of them, but my dream would be kind of somewhere in between. I don't want to be doing too much research because I feel like it's almost my job and something that I really do get fulfillment towards making new scientists. So inspiring passion, inspiring people to believe that they can do science. I've had so many students in my labs and I just taught an online lecture this summer come in and say that they can't do science or like they have this complete belief that science is not for them because they struggle with it. But it's really as much as having a sense of curiosity about the world and just being inspired to follow that curiosity and investigate it and that just, that's what makes you a scientist in my opinion and that's what so many students struggle struggle with their like um self-esteem in that way science and math and i just want them to know that anybody can learn this it's a set of skills and if they want to learn it and they are passionate about it they can do it so dream job totally. combination of teaching and research <laughs> and for my non-american listeners, I just want to be clear here. You're in Nebraska. That's where you, you completed your PhD, correct? Yes, I am still in Lincoln, Nebraska, the heartland of the okay. United States. <laughs> now, the schools that you, you said w would be your dream jobs, whether it's R3, R2, R1, whatever, that's it must be an American system, correct? Yes, most likely. I'm not very familiar with the um, Canadian system universities. Okay. Now, is there an institution in particular that really you find very attractive in terms of their programs there or their offerings or their, you know, their, their methodologies? I think it would be hard for me to say that I have a specific dream institution. Okay. Um, my background for my education, I have gone to all three of those instances. So my undergrad was an R3 university. It was a very, very small college in Ohio um, where I received very dedicated teaching. So like I, I got a good relationship with my professors. I had a very good relationship with my professors and they cared about my future. And I still talk to those professors. Then my master's was at an R2 institution, Bowling Green State University, um, which is also in Ohio, but Northern Ohio. And there I felt it was a bit larger, not as large as UNL, but it was a larger institution. And I still got good treatment with my professors, but it was a little different because I was in grad school. So I don't know how that would have been with my undergraduate degree. And then going to my PhD, University of Nebraska-Lincoln, that's an R1 institution. So that would be definitely more research oriented. And although there are wonderful, wonderful professors, and they're very, very dedicated to teaching, and I have a great relationship with them as well. Um, you get the larger class sizes, so sometimes you don't get that personalized experience as a student, and that's what I really wanted when I was younger. Now it's more, I, I just want to learn and kind of figure things out on my own. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, you've, you've you experienced guided? it, right? You, you've done, like you said, you've done R, R3, R2, R1. You, you've, you've, you know, done the whole gamut of it. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you tell people who are not in academia? What do you tell them what you do for a living? That has been something that has really evolved <laughs> throughout my time uh, in education and grad school. So when I was younger, it was always I was just going to school for geology. That was undergrad. Then I started telling people I was a geologist because I had a geology degree. Um, and I'd like to preface this with most of the people in my life before I went to grad school are not from an academic background. So okay. the only person that I really know, the only people are some of my aunts and uncles. I'm really close with my aunt Susan, and she has an academic background. And then my uncle Mark and Aunt Reagan have academic backgrounds. So it's not to say I come from a first generation family, like I would be first gen. Mm -hmm. But um, I didn't really have anybody to talk to about it. And I really still don't think my parents even understand. <laughs> my mom does. My mom is very um, involved in, in talking to me. And I love her very much. But I would tell them I was a geologist first. Then after that, I started saying I studied diatoms and I would just say I was a grad student. And then that started taking a toll on me mentally because all of my friends were getting jobs elsewhere and they were going on with their lives and starting families. And saying that I was a student still and having people look at me like I was a student made me feel very small. And mm -hmm. there, there's other ways that I could put that, but it just it made me feel not very great. <laughs> So right. after my second year of my PhD, I started really referring to myself as a paleolimnologist or a diatomist or just simply a scientist um, to people that, you know, wouldn't know what a paleolimnologist is or hadn't heard me talk about diatoms before. And then but, did uh, they follow up with what is a diatom? Yeah. And that was also something <laughs> that I really had to hone too. So at first, so let's talk about it. Let's do it right now. Study, <laughs> yeah. Let's do it right now. What is a diatom? So a diatom is a type of golden brown algae. They are the most diverse group of algae in on the planet. So they're extremely diverse. Um, and they, my fun fact that I will always tell people now is that they are responsible for about 50% of the Earth's oxygen that we breathe. Um, but they thrive in pretty much every aquatic environment that you could think of. They live in the ocean, they live in the lakes, they live in rivers, they live in the ponds that you sample. They can live on moss, they can live on tree bark, they can live in moist grass, temporary ponds. They're extremophiles in some cases, they can live in very extreme environments, like in uh, Yellowstone, you'll find them near hot springs, things like that, so they can exist in very, very high temperatures. And because they're so diverse and they have all of these different habitat preferences, they're very useful um, in modern science, but also in my field in paleolimnology. So like in modern science, they can be used as water quality monitors because they're the base of the food web. So other things eat them. And if they're healthy or there's um, a nice flora of diatoms in that area, we can check the water quality as well. So you can look at how much nutrients is in the water, and that can be an indicator of water quality. And then we can also use them to study the past because we know things about modern diatoms. And they have these really gorgeous little glass shells that are beautiful, not only for science, but for artistic purposes as well. And because they have these glass shells, they fossilize. So we actually have a record of diatoms back into the Cretaceous. So that's when they first evolved. So we can see diatoms through time, they might not be exactly the same in the Cretaceous, but we have this nice tracking of the evolution of diatoms, and I could talk about them forever. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> this is why I love, I love interviewing artists and scientists, because there's this passion. They just go on and on and on and on about their passion, <laughs> which is fantastic. Uh, but the thing about diatoms, for me, what struck me, because I read a book by Rob Dunn called Never Home Alone, and it, it detailed the kinds of um, bugs, little critters that live in your household. And that's when I became very curious about the microscopic life. When I looked at a sample of pond water for the first time, that's when I saw a diatom for the first time. And my mind was blown. 
I didn't really know what they were, but I knew what they looked like. And they really, for people who have never seen a picture of a diatom, I urge you right now, pause this podcast, look up the word diatom, D-I-A-T-O-M, and di- or diatoms with an S at the end. Look that up in Google image search and just sit there and, and observe. I mean, they look like little diamonds that essentially are different shapes different sizes. Some of them move, some of them don't, right? Yeah, some of them are capable of moving um, and some of them would just float. So they would just kind of be like tubing on the surface of the water. (laughs) It is mind-blowing and it's mind-blowing to me that people don't know. I didn't know that they existed and I'm pretty well read, you know. I might not have finished my degrees but I definitely read a lot, and I was surprised it wasn't really mentioned in, in, in a lot of the scientific texts that I'd read, and in a lot of the, uh, you know, pop science or biology books that I've read. So you mentioned here that they generate about 50% of the air that we breathe. Now, what I, why, what I actually find very interesting about that is that it's, that's actually controversial to say, uh, at least uh, according to what I've seen in dialogues online. Some people say, no, it's actually 20%. Some people say, no, it's 80%. Is there consensus or is this just one of those things that's, you know, in the scientific community, people are going to argue about? Lots of people in science like to argue. I say up to 50% because that's the upper limit of what there have been estimates of. But just like with a lot of things, as you're taking these measurements, there's a range of error. So usually people report it as between 20 to 50%. There will be those people that will argue till their death that it's not up to 50%. Um, But usually just when I'm communicating this to people that are not in academia and I want to really get across their importance, I use that upper limit Um, simply because it's more of a wow factor. (laughs) And if you go into the background of explaining like, oh, it could be 20%, it could be 50%, that again throws doubt into this anti-science climate where people just don't understand the scientific process. Yes. Um, it's a constant, it's a constant where you're coming up with a hypothesis, you're coming up with something to test that hypothesis, and then you're getting results back from that hypothesis. And those results are again within this range of error. And you can come up with a conclusion from those results and it might support your hypothesis or refute it. But a lot of people see science as this thing that's proving things, not supporting things. So if one study proves something, and another study refutes it, they see it as this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a, yeah, I guess controversy. It's, mm-hmm. it's this back and forth movement that they just don't typically understand fully. And I can explain that to them over and over again, but if they don't grasp it, giving you one solid number figure is gonna be so much better. <laughs> I actually love how you just said that. I, I'm probably going to end, end up having to clip that as a quote because <laughs> you just nailed it. You've just nailed it that people are looking for science to prove things, right? Mm-hmm. And so, okay, that's that's good to know because I wasn't sure. You know, I do. I still do a Twitch uh, microscope feed where I do show people diatoms. And I've always told them it generates, you know, a bunch of the air that we breathe. But it, it's been so contentious that I've, I've, I've stepped back from just using a percentage. Now, trees generate the air that we breathe as well. So are they on par with trees? Are they as important as trees? I would say they're as important as trees. But to to say that they're um, the only group of algae that would produce the oxygen that we breathe would be incorrect. So algae as a whole um, are also photosynthetic. So you can have different types of algae that are also contributing to that percentage of oxygen that's in the air. But the percentage that we're talking about, that 20 to 50%, is the estimate of just diatoms alone. So there's going to be oxygen being produced from diatoms. There's going to be oxygen being produced from um, green algae groups. There's going to be oxygen being produced from our trees, um, both in the rainforest, but also in the summer we'll get like a spike of, you can actually see a seasonal change in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere based off of temperate forests and when they're in bloom and when they're dormant. So they do contribute a significant amount to our atmosphere, but it's all, it's all part of a whole. Nothing, 
nothing is not connected. The thing that I always try to get across to people when I'm talking is that everything on our planet is connected, whether it's the algae in the ocean or the trees on land. They're all a part of it, and so are we. And that's why we have ecologists, right? I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> thank goodness for ecologists who kind of put everything together. Uh, are diatoms older than dinosaurs? Diatoms would be um, about the same age as some dinosaurs. So evolutionarily, diatoms probably had to come around somewhere in the Jurassic, but our evidence, our most widespread evidence of diatoms comes in the Cretaceous, which is about a little bit older than 65 million years ago. Then it's in the Cenozoic, which is the current geologic era that we're in. So from 65 million years to present, diatoms really diversify and take over all habitats. So they, they become the dominant group um, throughout that time. Wow. And they still are dominant today. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. And there are uh, freshwater and marine diatoms, yes. correct? And they, they are very, very different because in ocean environments, it's just a much larger uh, water body. So they can get very, very large. There are actually some diatoms that you can kind of see on your finger in the ocean. And then the aquatic diatoms that live in lakes and rivers, they're going to be much, much smaller. And you'll see completely different species in these environments as well, um, which is why we can use them to tell things about the past, because they like living in certain environments. I have a, a weird question for you. I don't even know if you know the answer to this, uh, <laughs> but are there diatoms in space? Uh, not to my knowledge. That would be... So I have not ever gotten into astrobiology or astrogeology or anything like that but it's something that fascinates me and I have this um fantasy of if they ever did find life on a different planet or if they did ever find microscopic life in general that they would be something like diatoms and that I would have this chance of going out there and studying space diatoms that would be so cool <laughs> I'm gonna no. keep my fingers I'm gonna <laughs> keep my fingers crossed for you <laughs> You mentioned earlier that they're even found in tree bark. Yeah, so that would be um, on moss on tree bark, really. So they can they can grow in moist environments. So the, the ones that grow in moist habitats that are actually on land would be known as aerophytic diatoms. They like to live in um, land habitats, basically. They don't have to be completely submerged in water. There are a whole bunch of different habitats that diatoms like to live in. They like to attach to rocks. They'll attach to other like larger types of algae or aquatic plants. They'll um, attach to sand grains. Some of them will move through the sand grains. Some of them like to just float in the water. Other ones will attach to other diatoms. They'll form chains. They're, as I said before, they're, they're ex just extremely diverse and none of them look, I mean, some of them look the same, obviously. There's a lot of problems with diatom taxonomy, but there are so many that look so different. It's it's just amazing. You know what they remind me of? They, they remind me of snowflakes, actually. Yes. Yeah. And that would be a very, very true statement, because even within one species, you can get such variation, so much variety. And yeah, not not a single one looks the same. And I can say that because I looked at one species of diatom in one lake for two and a half years, <laughs> took amazing. pictures counted the different structures on it, stared at those images forever. Finally, after like six years after I graduated with my master's, I'm getting that published. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but Amazing. Not a single one of them looks the same. Wow. And did you ever get bored? No. <laughs> that, I, see, this nobody's is what ever I Nobody's mean. ever asked me that. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask because you, you, this is six years of work. Again, it, it's very personality based. And again, this is why I'm so fascinated by scientists because you're, you have this ability to just keep your attention and your focus on something that, that really is either a question or a particular topic that just fascinates you. It just like constantly eats at you in a way, doesn't it? Yeah, because I would say I never, ever got bored. That's not something that I would ever say I, I felt. But I did get 
frustrated, frustrated yeah. to points where you want to quit. Um, yeah. But you're like, no, you, you can't quit. And um, frustrated to points where you question yourself and what you're doing and whether you're doing it correctly. Um, frustrated to points where you cry about it <laughs> and you, you actually put tears into it. And then there are other times where you look at them and you're like, I love this little guy. And you get to see these things that you just nobody really else gets to see. And you've watched um, Jeffrey Stone on the SEM now, I'm assuming. But yes. my master's work that I'm talking about was all SEM based for the most part. I did a bunch of measurements using SEM images. And I was just never bored because I was fascinated by the fact that I could see these things in such detail. So even on days when I was really frustrated, I was still just staring at like beautiful images of these and creatures that nobody else gets to see. SEM for everybody, uh, what uh, Dr. Melina is talking about is the electron microscope. So that's the microscope that can see. Uh, even a virus so you can you can see a lot of things a lot of details with those microscopes and they're super expensive super huge they're in laboratories but the fact that you got to play with that is very very cool I uh, I wanted to ask you about why so why is the study of past diatoms important so I think there's a lot of reasons that studying uh, not just past diatoms, but past lakes, which is what I focus on, are important. Um, when you study past lakes, you can tell a lot more than just what is changing in the lake. So the most topical thing and what I really focus on the most is studying past climate through paleolimnology. Um, you can do this indirectly using diatoms. So I use the example of seeing changes in lake level. One way that you might tell how climate has changed over time is if you're looking in the past in those lake sediments and you're analyzing diatoms that are older and then diatoms that are newer. And those older diatoms have um, a lot of species that really like living in shallow water. And then those newer diatoms have a lot of species that like living in deeper water. I can say that <laughs> those diatoms that live in um, that there had to have been a change in lake level over time, and then something had to have caused that change in lake level. So it was probably related to increased precipitation in the area, maybe. Um, it can also tell us things about the past nutrients, which can inform us more about uh, natural lake variability, basically. So if a lake has experienced a certain amount of variability, and then now we're seeing this change in the lake that has never happened before, that might indicate that we're reaching some sort of tipping point in the lake ecologically or environmentally. And that could inform us about water quality policies or conservation policies. So there's lots of different things that make it important, but really what it does and what it does for me is it informs you about the past so that we can make informed decisions in the present. Okay, now climate change is a hot topic these days. Oh yeah. Can you use this field to to essentially not may, maybe not predict the future but to learn from the past and maybe see a little bit into the future? Yeah. Um I <laughs> let me think about this. So we look not only using diatoms, but in paleolimnology we use multiple other proxies which are just indirect measurements of past climate. So you can use diatoms, which I use, but you can also use changes in chemistry over time. So you can look at um, isotopes, which are just different um, heavier light versions of an element. You can use the actual change in the type of sediment that's being deposited to tell things about the environment around it. So for instance, um, you can tell different changes in like how much sediment was being weathered into that lake. And that could be related to increases in precipitation or land use changes around the area. So it's really informative about the past. And you can actually kind of predict how those changes have happened. So there have been people that model past precipitation in the area. But typically, we don't, as paleolimnologists, model future scenarios. We could input those, those data, input those proxy or indirect measurements into models and make models about the past. So some people study about 5.5 million years ago was the Pliocene and that time period, it's been estimated and shown in indirect proxy measurements 
that it was probably around the same carbon dioxide levels as it is today, so around 415 ppm. So a lot of people will use these indirect proxies to model or simulate what the climate would have been like in the Pliocene to inform us what it might be like in the future. So that would be an example of using something from paleolimnology or just paleoclimatology to inform about future predictions. So did I understand that correctly? The carbon dioxide levels, you said? Yeah, CO2. CO2 was the same 5 million years ago as it is today? Yeah, that's the last time that we've reached levels like this. So about 5 million years ago is the first point in geologic time that we have reached this level of carbon dioxide. Is that a good thing? (laughs) Um, Not really. So carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. Oh, okay. Gotcha. When carbon dioxide increases, that's what's causing our increase in global temperatures. So what was happening, what, what makes climate change right now so unique and why we truly believe it's human induced is because it's been 5 million years since we've reached these CO2 levels. And we've also reached them at such a rapid rate geologically that it's insane. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one of the time periods that's closest to us that people look at and study or, or model climate from. It's so interesting because this is the stuff I'm not reading about in the media. <laughs> <laughs> Can we actually touch on that for a second here? Uh, you mentioned science denialism a little bit earlier. And it's actually Mm -hmm. on my list of things, and we've only got about 10 minutes left. But uh, (laughs) what what do you think is, I mean, I have my own assumptions about what's causing people to all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but to increasingly deny science. What's it like as a scientist to see this happening? And what do you think are are the causes? Uh, Honestly, it's really rough. (laughs) I get extremely frustrated simply because it's people that you know, too. It's not just people that you don't know. And it's almost like a blow at you that you've, you've given up your, your life. You've decided to devote your life to studying something and spending hours and hours on end. Like you said, I, I've obsessed over this. I've done so much research. And to have somebody look at you and tell you that that's not real. That's that's not true is so beyond frustrating and almost insulting. <laughs> and I really think it just comes from the fact that we don't really have enough science literacy in the background. And I can't even tell you why, but there are so many people that are buy into these conspiracy theories right now that that buy into conspiracy theories. And it's not just climate change, but the flat earthers right now, like people that believe that the earth is flat. This has been something that has been you know, acknowledged by the scientific community that the earth is round for hundreds and hundreds of years now. And uh, there are still people that look at these things and go, oh, I think that the scientists and that the government are trying to tell us that it's something and it's really not. And they think that we're out to get them. And I don't know when this happened. I, I don't know if it's because in the media, scientists are sometimes portrayed as these villains, but they see us as this enemy or or they just don't want to listen because it's it's a big change or or something like that i i really would love to see the psychology behind this because it just baffles me it it really does it baffles me it's one of the one of the things i want to do is find an expert on this topic and because i read a lot of books on the history of medicine and the amount of distrust in uh, medical doctors over time is uh, it's something that's not new. It's just not new. Uh, it is. It seems like it's it's bigger and more popular now because of social media, and there's just more chatter. We pay attention to it too much. We're obsessed with our phones, but it's definitely not new. And that's what I find fascinating. But I also wanted to ask you because you're a scientist. I wanted to know what it's like for actual scientists today. You know, living in that climate. So fucking frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. I can only imagine. I, yeah, I can only imagine. I, I, again, this is why I have to ask the people who are living in that. But that's also why I'm so passionate about the teaching side as well right now, because part of me really believes it has to do with the lack of public understanding of what science actually is. 
And people see science as this concrete thing and that it gives you those answers and that those answers stay the same. So like when I when I teach right now, I like to teach about science controversies is what I kind of say and talk about how um, especially things like the flat earth thing. So when you teach about um, the heliocentric, which would be the center of the sun versus the geocentric, which would be the center of our solar system as the earth. You talk about how at the time the Catholic church was in power and the Catholic church didn't want um, the, the geocentric model to go away because it put earth at the center of the solar system. And of course, earth had to be at the center of the solar system because humans were the most important thing at the time and the sun being at the center of the solar system made no sense. But over time, that evidence grew and grew and grew and grew, and so many scientists saw the same thing, that it becomes a scientific consensus, and then it becomes the, the accepted thing. So like right now, climate change is, is comparable to that, where at first it was kind of like, we're seeing this evidence, we're seeing this evidence, um, we're gaining more data, we're analyzing that data, and then that data is supporting the fact that climate is changing. And the more data we collect, the more it's supporting that climate is changing. So then it becomes a scientific consensus. But there's always, you know, this back and forth. So it's just, I really think it's just not understanding the science pro scientific process. Even though we perhaps don't know the actual causes, I think you've just, you've just come up with a solution, which is teaching and creating the next generation of scientists. And even if they don't go on to become a scientist, by teaching them science, I think that you're creating people who are at least skeptical of uh, snake oil, you know, yeah. that, you know, <laughs> like pretend stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a few minutes left and I really wanted to uh, get to know a little bit more about you outside of science. I wanted to know what other hobbies you might have. Oh, right now, uh, I would say my biggest hobby is cooking. I love <laughs> cooking. Um, I like, so So my husband is an, a very, very green thumb. He's got like hundreds of houseplants. And I, when I married him, I moved into the house and we have this really, really beautiful garden in the backyard. So just harvesting the vegetables and being creative with them. I don't really use cookbooks right now. I just kind of use what ingredients are in the house and it's like a fun, creative project. I like playing video games. <laughs> oh, I did not know that about you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not very um, about that on Twitter, but I, I have a big soft spot for video games and I always have. Hold right up, now, hold up. Been... <laughs> we got to talk video games for a second here. Okay. We, gotta, we have to. What do you play? First of all, do you play PC or console? I play console. Um, okay, what do right, you play? Right now we have a PS4 and we have a Nintendo Switch out. And on it kind of varies. So since the since the COVID-19 shutdowns, I got very into Animal Crossing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then other games that I've played, I like Red Dead Redemption 2. I played yes. that whole game through. Um, we had... Grand Theft Auto. So I really like those those Rockstar games. Uh, Far Cry Primal was something I got really into because it had like mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and it was prehistoric. Um, trying to think off the top of my head what, what games I've played other than that recently. That's hilarious. I never would have pinned you as a as a gamer, but this makes me so happy. I just got I'm so definitely excited not a like a first person shooter gamer. I've never been good at those. They make me panic. <laughs> but the, right. the storyline ones, I love. The first game I ever got when I um, purchased my PS4 was The Last of Us. Oh and yeah, I loved that game so much. That was uh, that was really good. And then I also I grew up with three siblings. So we had a, um, a Nintendo 64 and a GameCube growing up, and we always played like the Mario Kart games and Mario Party and fought with each other. <laughs> Did you grow up with boys or girls? Uh, two and two. So I'm Oh, my oldest, goodness. And I have a younger sister and two younger brothers. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, there mm -hmm. was a lot of fighting over video games. I <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we all love each other very much. <laughs> <laughs> And speaking of technology, actually, there was something that I, I we were talking about, you and I offline here, uh, about 
perhaps living off grid. What's that all about? Yeah. So I guess that, well, my husband and I have always had this kind of dream of building a house on land and having our own little homestead type thing. So we would, we would live off of our own, our own. We would just take care of ourselves. So we like, he likes gardening a lot. I like cooking. I like prepping that. I'm, I'm obsessed with animals. So to be in an area where I could have like livestock and take care of them would be amazing. But I've always been a city girl. So (laughs) this is something relatively new to me that I'd have to learn. But Recently, since there's been all of the COVID things, I think I've been pretty down on society. <laughs> so yeah. we've been just um, looking up land parcels in areas that are kind of more rural and fantasizing about what we could do with those land parcels. And living off grid more so is a fantasy just because there's just so much information coming at you all at once, all the time. I'm so tired of the news stories that are always negative and some of them not even being true. Um, As a person coming from the United States, I am not happy with the current political climate. Um, There's just a lot of things going into this right now that just makes it very, very appealing. But also as an academic and as somebody who really loves their access to information, going completely off grid would be a little difficult for me. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's ways to do it. I know my partner and I are definitely looking at country life. We're looking at maybe the East Coast or something more remote. I know uh, that I spoke with Kelly Brenner earlier. She's also looking at uh, maybe mo- moving somewhere. I think I think there's going to be a mass exodus from the cities, to be honest with you, after this whole COVID thing. Yeah, I think it's pushed a lot of people to kind of evaluate what's important. And also, as as someone who's kind of pushing for more like sustainable lifestyle, having that little parcel of land that you take care of and you kind of provide most of the things for yourself is just more sustainable environmentally because you're not going to be having so many things imported and exported, um, which will cut fossil fuels, things like that. But I don't know. I think it's just become a very appealing thing not only for that reason, but just socially. <laughs> there's there's just so much going on that's negative in 2020. It's almost completely overwhelming. It is. It's actually one of the things that I've promised myself with this podcast, that I wasn't going to make it political in any way. I think it's refreshing, to be honest with you. I'm creating what I, I've been wanting to hear online, you know? Yeah, and yeah. And it's, it's difficult. It, it's a difficult time, but I think... Uh, it's also a good time. I like to look at the positive of every negative <laughs> in a way. Yeah. I think it's a good time in the sense that, like you said, people are going to actually focus on what's important, which might be moving closer to family or moving out into the rural areas and going on solar or whatever energy is efficient or whatever, you know? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. I think one of the things that I'm definitely going to do is you know, if we move out to the country, I'm building myself a pond. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> right? I want to see. That ski. would be amazing. Actually, one last question for you. If I were to build myself a pond, would diatoms just naturally occur? Ah, uh, I know that diatoms are really hard to culture. Like if we were trying to culture or grow diatoms in a laboratory setting and a specific diatom. Those are very difficult to produce and reproduce, but if you were just to build a pond in the backyard and just kind of let it go, I am pretty positive that you would get some diatoms there. They they have this like resting stage, they're called like vegetative cells or resting spores, and those can be just like dormant for a bit, and then they can be blown by wind and suddenly get into a water body, so diatoms are really easy to disperse and colonize new water bodies. So I'm pretty sure you could get some. (laughs) Not sure what type. Well, I think it's going to be a surprise, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, Dr. Molina, thank you so much. This has been a very insightful uh, episode, and it's been a pleasure being able to share your passion about diatoms with the rest of the world. And I look forward to hearing more about what your next steps are. Thank you. This was so much fun. I really enjoy this. (laughs) Great. Thank you. 